This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Amazon Web Services and Epsigon. On this two-part episode, I chat with Paul Johnston about going green with serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 59. everyone, I'm Jeremy Daly and this is Servos Chats. Today I'm speaking with Paul Johnston. Hey Paul, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. So you are a consultant through Roundabout Labs and a research associate at the Leading Edge Forum. Um, so why don't you tell the listeners a bit about your background and what you have been up to lately? Uh, so um, yeah, background's a bit confusing. It's always a little bit uh, strange. I don't have this whole, um, you know, 14 years at any one big company or anything like that spent many years in tech 20 years um working with various different startups running my own business that kind of thing um then i worked in uh, a startup in 2015 uh that uh, effectively started using aws lambda so this is where the serverless comes in uh and i was one of the first companies to start using lambda in in uh, in any kind of you know, scale in a startup mm -hmm. as a kind of first principle. Um, and then I went from there to uh, using it in uh, in that startup in 20 countries, went a bit mad, uh, tiny, tiny budget uh, from AWS. And I was like, well, this, this kind of works. I'm going to keep doing it. Started telling people. Uh, AWS took notice, gave me a job. That was quite fun. Was a senior <laughs> developer advocate for serverless at AWS for a while. Um, and then uh, didn't stay there all that long, but it was uh, really enjoyable uh, while I was there um, and moved away from there to uh, go and do some consulting, which I've done um, since uh, 2018, 2018, 2018. Um, and then from what there, year is it again? I, I, honestly, <laughs> this year has gone on for a very long time. Right. Um, right. And uh, since then, I have uh, done some uh, consulting in various different projects, tech projects. But one of the things I've done is worked on working out how uh, tech and climate um, work and how they intersect. Um, and one of the projects I've been working on is a research project for the Leading Edge Forum, which if any of you know, uh, Simon Wardley, that's the organization that he works for. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've been working on a project to look at how climate change is going to affect business over the next 10 years and from a tech angle very much. So from a data and a tech angle. Uh, and just trying to see what um, what lessons we can learn and what things are going to be coming up in the future. So kind of many and varied, shall we say. Right. Well, listen, I have been wanting to get you on the show for a very long time because I think this whole climate change thing is hugely important. I have two young daughters. Um, I think about their future. I think about the you know, the junk we pour onto the earth, the, the pollution, the amount of carbon dioxide we're creating. And one of the things that I think really attracted me to serverless in the beginning was not just, you know, obviously not having to manage servers, which is great. Um, but this idea that maybe by sharing tenancy on a big server and only using the compute that we needed to, like I was thinking in the back of my head, I'm like, well, maybe that reduces the amount of energy we use. Um, and so I know you have dug into this like, you know, tremendously. And, um, and I mean, you're an expert on this stuff. And so I'd love to go through all these things with you. Just get your insights, get some thoughts on this stuff. We can talk about serverless and some details of serverless as well. I'm sure that's what the listeners want to hear. But, but I love this idea of going green with serverless because I think it's hugely important. I think it's a, it's a step in the right direction. But maybe we could start and just, you know, or start by saying, you know, how does serverless technology compare to traditional technology or traditional servers when it comes to green computing? So it's a, it's a very, very good question. It's almost impossible to answer in some ways, but it's really, really easy to answer in others. So um, one of the things you want to look at, first place you want to start is, um, well, effectively, you want a definition of what serverless computing is. So let's just kind of sure. take function as a service as kind of the base enabling technology, shall we say, as um, for most serverless computing. So I think most people will kind of see serverless and they'll go, right, what does that mean? Uh, and so you want to drop it down to something that is kind of tangible. So you want to talk about 
function as a service really as being the base um, enabler because uh, serverless for me is about uh, business value and and getting as much as possible out of your technology um, in terms of applications and 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 all of those elements. And so I think when you when you talk about um, function as a service, what you get is you get a pay for what you use. So you know that you are using as as little electricity for your application as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And so what you're trying to do is go, well, I want to be as green as possible. So being as green as possible means actually reducing as much of your usage as possible. That's essentially what we mean by being green is actually reducing and actually using as as little as close to zero in terms of, you know, <laughs> Uh, compute as we possibly can. So what does that mean? How do you do that? Well, you know, in terms of in terms of building an application, don't build the application to start. You know, just don't don't build the application at all if you possibly can. Uh, if you can build it on the basis of lots and lots of caching or not running any servers at all, then great, do that. If you can do it on the basis of, um, you know, only running compute when you absolutely have to, then great. If your application can scale down to zero and if literally can you know nothing is running if nobody is using it that again is that's the kind of thinking that goes into being green and being serverless which is why serverless is something that for me works really well alongside right. an, a, a, an environmental conversation because it's not just about you know what does the techno how does the technology work it's actually well this this approach allows me to say well it gives me business value it gives me environmental value and actually when when you come down to it it, it just works out as better common it's more common sense when you actually right. try and when you build the application you come out to the other end it's usually a better application and easier to build going forward as well so you've got all of these things working positively um it, it just seems to it seems to work out better right right well i i love i love that idea of you know deciding whether you need even need to build the application that's a really good way to just cut your carbon footprint and say yeah. don't even build the application that's super easy um but unfortunately there are applications that still need to be built and we still need power i'm sitting here with my 16 inch macbook pro drawing 100 watts of power with the fans spinning a million miles an hour because my cpu is going nuts and just generating a ton of heat obviously in the data centers you have millions of computers that are generating a lot of heat, that are drawing a lot of power. And like you said, every time there's some execution that needs to be done, that CPU has to spin up, which means we need more power, caching, SSD drives, things like that, very low, um, you know, low, uh, uh, I guess, uh, wattage uh, types of equipment like that, obviously draw less and, and there's ways for efficiencies there. But there's only so much of that we can control. We're still going to need to do compute. Um, so what about data centers themselves? Like what type of impact do those have? Because I, I think it's more than most people think. Yeah, so data centers are, um, let's put it this way, that they're, they're, they're a huge impact um, and they're a significantly greater impact than most people realize. And and uh, I've, I wrote a wh- white paper in 2018 with a friend of mine, Anne Curry, uh, and she and I did an awful lot of digging. Now, um, when we did the digging, we, we found out an awful lot around, you know, people saying that it was going to be, you know, there was going to be a tsunami of data, which meant that data centers were going to grow at a huge rate. Right. And um, and we found that, you know, it was going to be five times more data was going to be going through data centers and using electricity. That that may or may not come to pass. That's a, that's a prediction. Uh, so there are some who say that is and some who say that isn't going to happen. But it, it it's a huge amount of electricity and it's a huge amount in terms of carbon footprint. And some estimates go between about 1% and some say up to 4 to 5% of um, electricity is in the, world. Uh, in the world. In the world, right. Yeah. And so, you know, and if you take that in terms of carbon footprint, that's, you know, we're talking in the magnitude of somewhere between something like um, a quarter to 2 to 3%. You know, it's a huge amount of actual carbon emissions that go to um, into data centers. Now, there's a, an interesting conversation about what constitutes a data center at this mm. point, because some people go, right. well, it's only it's only hyper hyperscale computing. Da, 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 da. And, and you're sitting there going, well, actually, that's, that limits what you mean. And, and it's a <laughs> whole other conversation. But yeah. um, I tend to 
put that it's actually around 2%, probably a little bit less, which puts it somewhere in the same region as aviation mm-hmm. pre-2020. Um, really and, uh, you know, and so you end up with this, it, even if the numbers aren't right, they're in the same kind of ballpark. And it's really actually very difficult to know how much electricity data centers actually use because most of the providers don't tell us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the uh, people who do the digging around the numbers are doing things like going and counting the number of um, uh, uh, diesel generators outside to work <laughs> yeah. out what the backup power is and therefore how much backup power you need for the size of, um, you know, for a for a type of data center and what that would, you know, so they're not, nobody really knows is, is the actual answer, but it's actually significantly more than most people realize. Um, and while there are some that go, it's really, really terrible and it's, you know, it's huge. And there are some that go, oh, it's nowhere near as bad as all that. And it's coming down. And it's, it's probably somewhere in the middle. It's really not good, whatever, however we skin right. this cat. And, um, and so we end up with data centers being a, a problem and they are an issue we need to solve um, and actually if you look at someone like Google and if you look at someone like um, uh, Microsoft they're both trying to um, yeah. do an awful lot in this area well that's what I was gonna say so I mean I, I, I you do see you know press about this and you do see you know companies talking about this I mean what what are they doing to try to become more efficient so if you have a look at um, Let's take Google, for example, because I think they're probably the best example of good practice in this mm-hmm. space. They are trying to look at their um, in, look at their electricity usage. They're trying to offset on a I think it's an hourly basis. It might be a half hourly basis. They're trying to offset their electricity usage usage with purchases of renewables mm-hmm. in the same grid. So in an electricity grid, they'll buy, if they're using X, they'll try and buy X amount of electricity from renewable sources for the same hour in the same grid. So there are some places in the world where that's not possible. So some of the, I think it's the Chinese data centers, um, I I think it might be Taiwan or something, they can't do that because there aren't the renewable sources available. So they have to do it in another way. Um, But a lot of their US data centers, they're definitely able to do that for the majority. So that's really, really good practice, but they're still not able to do it completely. So they're still offsetting in other ways. Uh, And offsetting here is we use, you know, you you use the electricity in the grid, which may not be completely 100% renewable, and then you buy an amount of renewable energy from somewhere else to offset the fact that you've used bad energy, you know, carbon emitting energy. So that's all an offset is. Uh, Microsoft, again, they've got they've got interesting practices here. They um, this is, this is, this is, I love this topic by the way. Um, <laughs> they, um, they, uh, they use renewable energy for um, something I can't remember the exact numbers. It's something like forty percent of their data center usage. So that's pretty good. And then they offset the rest. But they also have an internal carbon price. So if they emit, then they have to pay. Internally, um, uh, I think the last time I looked, it was twelve or twenty dollars or something like that. It may have gone up since then. So for all the carbon they emit, they actually price it internally, which means that if they move to renewables, it's actually cheaper for them. So it's actually ah, some really interesting. interesting things going on at Microsoft, and I think that's a, a, an interesting model to look at. That's a good way to play with a good way to play with your balance sheet is to very to very do that right. Very good, um, really good practice. Uh, AWS. Um, they have four green regions. So there's uh, Frankfurt, Ireland, Montreal, and Oregon. Um, really good, except for the fact that they don't tell us how green they are or how they're offsetting or what they're doing there, but they just tell us they're green. So it's a little bit unhelpful. Um, and they don't tell us how green any of the other regions are. So you can't actually offset your AWS bill, which doesn't really help if you're, you know, I'm sure if you're really big, you can go to them and say how much electricity we're using at these different points and can you tell us how to offset and they probably do it, but you have to be kind of, you know, hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Probably. Sure. And, uh, and if you're serverless, the likelihood of you doing that is very, very low. So um, I think you, you see that there are, there are interesting conversations going on in that space mm-hmm. um, around how best to start thinking about the carbon footprint of data centers. Right. So it's not just the, the, the carbon footprint and the offsets and some of that stuff is 
I think those are great, right? I mean, you're still <laughs> using dirty energy, I guess, if you want to call mm-hmm. it that. Um, but you're 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 subsidizing essentially green energy on on the other side. But is there a, a difference or a distinction between sort of the idea of um, just offsetting your carbon footprint, saying, "Hey, listen, we're gonna we're gonna run up the meter, but we're gonna pay for it in a, in another way." Is there a distinction between that overall environmental impact and the efficiency that can be created in a data center? So I think I think um, efficiency is a really uh, difficult area for a lot of people because a lot of people like to go oh we, we've we've bought better servers they're more efficient therefore it's better for the environment in- we installed led light bulbs exactly you know we we've <laughs> done we've done our bit uh, there's the thing called um jevons paradox it's it's very old um economist who's you know long dead who basically worked out that if you uh, made um made things more efficient made energy produce production more efficient effectively right. then people would use more energy Right. So, exactly. you know, you know, you basically make it cheaper to do something. People will spend more money on it and therefore they use more in the end because like, oh, it's fine. This is, this is easier. And um, not, to, not to interrupt you, but that's actually the same argument people make about serverless where they say yeah. serverless is faster and cheaper. That just means you'll build more with it. Right. So you're not actually you're not actually spending less. You're just doing more, which is which is yeah. still great. But back to your point. Yeah. And it's exactly the same with cloud. So when we all had to buy servers and stick them in a data center ourselves, that was hard work and it was difficult. Right. And then along came, you know, the ability to buy a virtual server. And then, you know, we literally just bought virtual servers like they were water. And then it was like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's it's exactly. tens of dollars and it doesn't matter. And now we just go like, right, we can build whatever we like. That That's efficiency. And that, you know, the fact that a data center is more efficient does not make it more environmentally friendly it just means that everybody wants to use more of it mm-hmm. and that i think is a um i think it's a, a fallacy that if we make things more efficient it's more environmentally friendly yes we need to make things more efficient but we need to make things more efficient and we need to look at reduction of our of our carbon footprint overall and that i think that reduction comes first and then efficiency leads to reduction not efficiency is just the overall goal because that doesn't that doesn't lead and that i think is a um a, a, a personal concern as well because most people talk about oh it's fine i'm i'm becoming more efficient right. i'm i'm personally you know i'm doing all these wonderful things and then you sit there and go well it's fine i i'm doing my bit um we're more efficient we don't do this we don't do that and and then you're like well but then you know you you use more heat because your house is you know right. you, you use you just you just do and you just use more because you've made yourself more efficient or you um a good example i think is most people would understand right now is uh, in the middle of having spent three months in our homes which is when we're recording this you know um you know you you all of a sudden realize that you can have packages delivered to your house right so easy it's so straightforward the efficiency of packages being delivered to your house stuff you know you just go well i don't need to go anywhere i can just order Mm -hmm. it I can just order whatever. Well, I just need more of this. I will order it. And it's just the efficiency of stuff doesn't mean you use it less. It just right. means that you use, you just, you just find it more and more. Mm-hmm. You will use it more. And I bet everybody who's listening to this is going, oh yeah, I've, I've ordered far more stuff in the last few months than I have in the last, in the previous like two years. Right. Um, and that's how it works. Well, I also love the fact that you get that Amazon box delivered and it's a box within a box, sometimes within a box, right? Like, I mean, it's so it, it's efficient for you, but it is a lot worse for, for everything else in terms of, uh, you know, how many boxes need to be made, which, by the way, I had this idea. I don't know if anybody's on board with this, but when you get a package from Amazon, now that Amazon is doing most of their own delivery, or at least in some places, you should just leave your 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 broken down boxes out on your front porch or wherever it is, and then the Amazon people should take those back and then reuse those boxes as opposed to trying to throw them into recycling, which I think most towns say they have recycling, and then you know it ends up in a landfill somewhere. But anyways, <laughs> separate idea. Um, oh, but whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Hi everyone, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor Amazon Web Services and tell you about a new completely free learning path that will teach you how to use objects in Amazon S3 to trigger automated workflows using AWS Lambda. 
James Bezik, the same author that brought you the awesome Innovator Island virtual workshop, is back again with the six-episode learning series that shows you how to use the S3 and Lambda pattern through several example applications. You'll deploy applications into your own AWS account, explore extending them using your own use cases, and ultimately be ready to develop sophisticated distributed applications built around S3 events using custom code to integrate with other AWS services. And the whole thing takes less than an hour to complete. So if you want to level up your serverless skills, check out the link in the show notes of this episode or visit bit.ly slash S3 Lambda. You mentioned, though, this idea of, again, efficiency probably creates more demand in a sense because it's easy, right? And so if it's easier to do, well, um, you know, then, then again, you can consume more. Um, and I think that is certainly true with things like EC2 instances. Like you said, I can just spin up, you know, as many EC2 instances as I want to. Um, and, you know, it's going to cost me incrementally. But for the most part, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty cheap. Um, whereas when you build with serverless, you kind of build with some constraints. So does that does that tie into green energy or I guess maybe uh, fighting against uh, Jevon's paradox there? Yeah, I think it does actually. I think there is there is more in there because your your constraint is um, you're trying to reduce. You're trying to use as little as possible when you're trying to build serverless, or at least in the way that I build with serverless. You're trying to um, say, how can I do as little as possible work, you know, in terms of compute um, and get as much as possible out of it. And I think that is a, uh, that is almost the, the that is the most efficient thing you can do. And it's like your, your, your end point is with all of these efficiencies is to get to the point of only doing as much as you as you have to, to, to achieve the goal that you're trying to get to. I think if you're, if you're using something that is inefficient, then you're, you always have efficiencies to, to, to bring, bring in. I think if you're, if you're trying to build something that is as efficient as possible, and there is pretty much no, you know, there's nothing to make more efficient in that process, then you're essentially building as green as you possibly can. Whatever the, whatever the goal of the, solution at the other end of the end of the day is i mean just as a quick example one of the principles that i had when i was building um the startup in 2015 mm -hmm. 16 was that we didn't put any you know we were using node and we were using python as our libraries within aws lambda uh, as our languages and we we basically said uh as a rule that we used no libraries we used no libraries we used no um frameworks we used nothing it was all pure language in each of the mm -hmm. functions and each function should only do one thing and it was like the principles meant that each function I, th I think we only had like three or four functions that were over 150 lines ish maybe 200 right. mm -hmm. long so if you went into a function every single person in the company who, who was able to code could go in and probably fix the function if it went wrong and it also meant that every single one was lean to within an inch of its life Right. Do you know what I mean? It was that kind yeah. of it was it was it was so efficient and it was so clean that it was it, it was it was getting ridiculous to, to and it was it was easy to do because it was just the principles that we set in place. It was the constraints and the principles and everything else. Um, but if you don't start with those principles, if you don't start with the understanding that that is the constraint right. and you just go, right, we've, we've got all of this, all of this, you know, we can do what we like. Yeah. You know, within the context of world, oh, isn't this lovely? If you don't start with those understandings and constraints, then you end up in, well, how do we make this more efficient? How can we can we make this more efficient? Um, if you start with how can we be as efficient as possible, then it's a different conversation going forwards. And right. I think that's yeah. the surplus. Yeah, no, I, I think you, I think you're totally right. And I mean, that's that's one of those things where, like you said, the single purpose function thing is not only is it great from an efficiency standpoint, you're using as little, you know, you're spending as little money as possible because it loads fast, you don't get the cold starts as badly and, and things just run really quickly. Um, it does one very specific thing 
and it can scale independently, right? So if you have millions of people hitting against that one thing, that one action scales, whereas something else, like maybe your delete AP, you know, your delete uh, path or whatever, doesn't have to yeah. run. That doesn't have to scale. Um, and it's not like a microservice that's running on a container where that container is running and have to scale up everything just to process one small bit of code. So um, I think that's really interesting. And I love this argument about thinking about efficiency right from the beginning. And you and I have talked before uh, about where that efficiency comes in later on and what that means for global impact or for, for climate impact later on. But I want to talk quickly about Project Drown, uh, sorry, Project Drawdown, because you yeah. you talk about this a lot. Um, and I think this is a good way for developers who are unaware of their impact to start thinking about this. Can you just tell people a little bit about that? So I think um, I think there are a lot of a lot of people think that you know to to fix climate change and to kind of you know hit all of these goals that, that the obvious thing is we've just got to sort out the electricity system one of the obvious things we've got to do is you know go and um you know just make everything renewable electricity and they don't know things like uh that 33 percent of global emissions come from agriculture or that mm -hmm. cement is a significant right. um emitter of carbon emissions or that the uh, oil industry in itself is like 10 percent of emissions because of the fact that actually taking stuff out of the ground that is going to be burnt and emit emissions actually produces emissions itself it's it's a it's a massive complex world it's not just about this you know we need to make more batteries and the world will be a better place you know it's it, the 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 complexity of the argument about how we uh, fix the problems that we have are are huge and systemic um, and most people haven't actually looked at this problem to to know about it and i think project drawdown is a, is brilliant because one of the things we almost certainly will have to do to um, hit the kinds of targets we need to hit to make a livable world in the future is that we're probably going to have to take carbon out of the atmosphere in some way or at least reduce significantly the amount of emissions in certain areas. So one of the um, one of the organizations that looks at this is something called Project Drawdown uh, and they uh, have produced they actually produced in April, I think it was, an update to their recent, uh, to a previous piece of work, which was um, looking at the biggest impacts um, in how, uh, you, what kind of things will reduce carbon emissions significantly. So what will effectively draw down emissions over time as quickly as mm -hmm. possible. Uh, previously, it was things like um, air conditioning units, because actually the stuff in air conditioning units is is impossible to recycle. But actually air conditioning units, when the planet's getting hotter, we're going to need air conditioning units. So <laughs> if we produce more air conditioning units and the planet, it's it's just it's just not good. So we need to do something about air vicious conditioning. vicious cycle. Right. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, but, uh, you know, previously they were also talking about things like um, educating uh women and actually because educating women is important for understanding um how to across the world this isn't in mm -hmm. in various other places but across the world in terms of understanding um because they see that the more educated uh, that women are in terms of um in areas where they aren't educated there seems to be greater population so this is this just seems that this is a good idea so right. going creating organizations to go out and educate women is a climate um it's a good thing for the climate you're like okay this is a positive um right. so it, you see you see that it's not just about going and building massive wind farms and it's not just about building batteries and it's not just about getting everyone to drive electric cars although those things are also good um right. but it's it's um it has and it's also things like agriculture and it's also things like uh, lab grown meat and it's also things like mm -hmm. all of these elements actually are part of the solution and it's understanding what are good things and bad things to do and understanding how they all fit together and i think it's worth just having a look at the just google project drawdown it's worth yeah. having a look at their website uh, reading all the stuff around it it's it's I think it gives people a more rounded understanding of what's needed to be done rather than just going, oh, it's just this. Right, right. No, I mean, actually, I, I was taking a look at it after you and I talked before. Um, and just the fact that like family planning, um, just that has a huge impact on uh, carbon emissions. You know what I mean? And yep. just everything from 
the medical services that are needed to actually having another child and what that means and um, and just being able to you know understand those impacts. So there are obviously those big things that you yep. can do. Um, you know, these are global things like yeah, let's get rid of fossil fuels and some of that stuff. Um, but what what personal actions? actually matter when it comes to so we'll move away from technology yeah. here for a second um because this i'm I, this is an interesting subject for me my wife and i talk about this all the time um, but what personal matter or actions actually matter um and you know because like the other day i mean this is something you know silly but i mean we you know we use we recycle or we try to i mean we put the stuff in the recycling bin hopefully it gets recycled um we uh you know we try to buy uh, aluminum or uh, or glass instead of plastics and things like that. Um, recently, we just switched because I was getting sick of throwing away all these paper uh, paper towels and and napkins. Um, we just switched to cloth napkins. Now again, does that have a huge impact? Probably not. Does it make me feel better about myself a little bit? But I, <laughs> like, what are your thoughts? Because I know you're a vegetarian. Right? I mean, like, yep. what what do these even mean? Does this help? <laughs> yes, I think it does. I think. Um, there are two things that's worth saying. I think um, all these things are worth doing. Um, I think they are worth doing from the point of view of uh, changing who you are and changing the way that you live. I think those things are going to be important. I think over the next 10 years, the world is going to change. I think we mm -hmm. are going to see a, a radical shift um, into something looking like a low carbon economy. And I think a lot of people are going to struggle to shift over to that. So I think the more that yeah. we can do to understand that and understand that we are probably going to be eating less meat, that we are probably going to be um, reusing an awful lot more of our items, that we are probably going to have less access to uh, some of the things that we see as convenience items. We probably right. will still have um cars but they will i suspect that fuel will be significantly more expensive you know yeah. because it will be taxed not because the fuel will be unable to be got it's just that I, I can see an awful lot of things so i think lifestyles we need to think about our own personal lifestyles in the context of the world is going to be changing and i think it's probably a good thing to start considering how your life needs to change around all of those things so i think it's important to think about those things and understand that actually we do live an incredibly privileged life you know we talk about you know switching lanes a little bit we talk a little bit about how um we have talking about black lives matter you know mm -hmm. being being white i literally don't know where you know that i have privilege simply because right. of the fact that yeah. i am white it's just it, I, it happens and i don't know and i'm i've learned an awful lot about all the little things that i've never had to worry about uh, and I think if you switch lanes back, we live in an industrial, you know, we live in the industrialized nations. We have had the oil and it's a similar kind of thing. You know, we have had the money and the wealth and the oil that and that other nations who haven't had the money and the wealth and the oil haven't had. And I think we need to realize that that isn't going to last forever. That, right. that tap is going to get turned off. And I think the wealthiest nations are going to struggle the most because they are going to have to change the way that they think. And I think that yeah. um, that lifestyle, you know, the, the idea that, you know, the green economy is going to change all of that and, you know, they're just going to be able to carry on and keep staying rich, I think, isn't going to right. isn't going to keep going. So I think in terms of you know, going back to the personal, um, you know, because that's where it all started. I've just gone on a bit of a rant. Right, sure. uh, <laughs> that's fine. I think I think you uh, and I and all of us, I think we all do need to start thinking about the personal. I think we need to change those things, recognize that they aren't in and of themselves going to change anything in a big way. But getting involved in a movement is so, right. you know, writing in the US, it'll be writing to whoever your representative is or ringing them up or whatever it is. You know, I see all mm. these things from the UK and think, well, we don't do that. We just write <laughs> to our MP and then that's about all we can right. do or go on a march. But it's those kinds of things, finding the uh, the groups that actually talk about these things and um, understanding the intersectionality of climate with other areas of justice including race and i think right. these things are quite important to understand that they do they, there is a connection for example i mean it's something that i, I think is quite important to point out is that is an awful lot of um uh, non-white and i think it's worth just saying outside of white people non-white people mm -hmm. 
live in more polluted areas simply right. because they are poorer. You know, mm-hmm. so there is there is a racial element to climate justice, and I think that that right. you know you can't you can't just separate these two things out. So I think you have you know you can't just go I'm just going to you know buy buy better things. I think there there are other elements to right. being part of the conversation that uh, just look into it and see where it fits. Hey everyone, I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Epsigon. If you're running modern applications in the cloud like serverless and microservices, Epsigon can add distributed tracing and logging capabilities to all of your workloads. It lets you discover, monitor, and alert on issues. Plus, you can search across every trace, payload, and log so that you can troubleshoot and solve the most complex issues in seconds, all through a single, easy-to-use, web-based interface. It's also incredibly simple and fast to set up. There are no agents to install, no manual coding, no tagging, and no training required. It literally takes about three minutes to get this up and running. Then Epsigon will discover and instrument all of your application stacks with no coding changes. Now I've known their CEO Nitsen and Ron, their CTO for quite some time, Both of them have actually been guests on this podcast, and they both bring an incredible amount of expertise to the observability space. The work that they and the team at Epsigon have done is absolutely amazing, and they've built a really solid product. So if you're looking for an observability tool that can run on any of your production workloads, containers, Lambda, Kubernetes, Fargate, or even VMs, definitely check them out at epsigon.com. That's E-P-S-A-G-O-N.com. No, I think you're right. I think the everything is so intertwined and complex. And and I think that goes back to something that I've thought about for a very long time where I feel like it's the infrastructure that is part of the problem. Like you said, we've got oil and we've got, you know, uh, combustion, you know, combustion engines that we use to power our cars. We have highways that, you know, are are terribly inefficient in terms of, um, you know, backing up traffic and 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 cars idling and things like that. Um, in the United States, I, I mean, I've been to Europe a number of times, and in a lot of the cities in Europe, they have very efficient uh, public transportation systems. In the yeah. United States, we don't. I mean, I I live about forty five minutes outside of Boston, Massachusetts. If I drive my car in during rush hour, it takes me an hour and a half. Um, if I take a train in, which is just an old clunky, you know, commuter train or whatever, <laughs> that takes me, you know, an hour and 15 minutes, right? So um, the trade-off of the flexibility and so forth, and again, I'm probably not saving much in emissions either. Uh, but just going back to the infrastructure thing, this is something where if I'm sitting at my house, right, and I, like you said, I'm privileged, I live in this nice house, um, I've got central AC, I've got heat that I can just turn up to as high as I want to and as be as comfortable as I want to, burning oil, because that's what was built in this house, that's what I have, I have oil heat. Um, <clears throat> the question is, as, as a consumer, and this is super selfish, but why do I have to be cold because the government and because (laughs) corporations and because everybody made these decisions for me to say, this is how you get warm. Um, And you get warm by burning oil as opposed to saying, hey, we put you know, we've covered the Texas panhandle with solar panels and um, and we're collecting all this energy and we're going to have electric heat that's going to be 100 percent efficient. And you can turn the heat up as much as you want to, and that's not going to affect anything. Now, again, I know that's a little bit selfish, but I think about these things just from an infrastructure standpoint to say, why do I, why do I have to make those trade-offs? And I think a lot of people would ask this question. It's like, why does my house, why are modern houses built with one waste pipe? Why isn't there a gray water and a waste pipe? Why aren't those separate? Why can't I capture that gray water and use that to water a garden or, you know, or something else? Like why, you know, why can't, why aren't houses built that way? And so I I think that's just this thing that, that bothers me so much is that asking people to do a lot of these personal things. And I have no problems doing these things. I mean, they certainly don't, excuse me, certainly don't have problems doing these things, but I feel like the infrastructure is fighting against us. Yep. And I would agree with you. Um, <laughs> the very simple answer to that, I think. Um, but yeah, the, the slightly longer answer is that um, oil companies 
it has been shown in various different ways. And I think it's worth pointing out to, you know, pointing to other resources on this, have, have spent an awful lot of time, money, energy, resources in making sure that they are the ones who make the rules and they are right. the ones who have the, the power to do things. And, you know, it's like there were, there were electric scooters in the 1920s. You know, it's like we, right. you know, people think you, you know, get onto a, you know, you, you get an app and then you go and, you know, you scan a QR code, you pick one up and you scoot off. And it's, isn't that wonderful? We had electric scooters back in, you know, we, we were doing stuff like this. The first cars, there was a, there was a discussion whether it was going to be electric mm-hmm. back, back in the day. You know, this wasn't, we had an oil industry. We have an oil industry that is incredibly powerful across the world. Um, and, you know, oil is seen as incredibly cheap and it's incredibly, you know, it's incredibly efficient in terms of, you know, getting, you know, you burn something and it produces an awful lot of power and energy. And that, and so there's a, there are some really positive things about that. But the downside is that it produces the emissions and those emissions right. have a have a secondary effect that is incredibly negative. And we need to so we need to move away from that. It is definitely a systemic problem. It is definitely um, a systemic issue. And it is definitely something that you can't fix on your own. So, you know, part of this whole conversation about people going off grid, and I've seen an awful lot of people in tech, you know, I've watched them. They're going, oh, yeah, you know, I've done, I'm doing my bit. I've got loads of solar panels. I've got a heat pump in my garden. I'm doing this. And I'm doing that. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there going, well done. You're going to be fine while the rest of us are absolutely <laughs> stuffed. You know, and it's just yeah. like, it's, it's that, um, it's that uh, we have to kind of think about, all of us and all of us is 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 politicians it's companies it's it's understanding right. that um you know a pledge to to do something by 2030 by a company is not the same as we've done this this year right. and you know and it's just thinking about those kinds of things is is far more important and putting pressure on companies i think is also quite important all right now are you a fan of the uh, back to the future movies have you ever seen uh, those yes all right, so because I'm just thinking that if uh, electric cars would have been a thing, then the entire plot of the third of Back to the Future 3 would have been unnecessary and they wouldn't have had to make that terrible movie. So, but anyways. Um, it would have been so, <laughs> it would have been It would have been different. So one of the things, though, that um, I guess, you know, I mean, now that you and I, we've solved the world's problems here because we've discussed mm-hmm. them on a podcast, um, obviously there's a lot that needs to be done. But it, practically... What can people in tech actually do um, to try to have an impact on this? Oh, that's a massively broad question. Um, so, uh, so right. I think the biggest thing is uh, make yourself aware. Start to do the research. Um, a really good place to start is uh, it's something that a lot of people have heard of, but probably not read. Um, is just to read the uh, IPCC uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Special Report mm-hmm. um, uh, of Warming of 1.5 Degrees. The Special Report of 1.5 Degrees, it's fine. It's the IPCC. Uh, <laughs> came out in October 2018, but it was the thing that triggered, a, uh, the mo- triggered most people into understanding that we had not a huge amount of time left to really try and keep warming below 1.5 degrees. And that was where the idea of a carbon budget came from. The amount of carbon we had left to burn, uh, the amount of carbon we had to put into the atmosphere before we basically breached 1.5 degrees as a, a as a threshold or two degrees. And so that was where the idea of 12 years came from. Um, and so that's, all of these little things came from that paper and it's well worth reading. So I think that's worth kind of just pointing as a, a, a good reference document for all of this. But in terms of tech, um, simple. Start looking at your um, start looking at your data centers where you store stuff. Are your mm-hmm. data centers run on green electricity? Uh, if they're not, go and ring your data center provider and say, "Move yourself over to green electricity, please." Thank you very much. It's really not hard, and actually, half the time it's cheaper. Um, yeah. If you're in the cloud, uh, move your um, uh, workloads over to green regions. So if you're already in Google or Microsoft, you're probably 
already in a green region, if you're in AWS, move them over to uh, Oregon, Montreal, Frankfurt, or Ireland. If you can't move them over because you're basically stuck, which is often what happens, uh, then uh, move your workloads that can be moved. So your things like your test environments or your um, machine learning workloads or things that don't matter which region that they're running, move those over to green regions. You know, there can, there is always a way of moving more stuff over to green regions. Turn stuff off is also something else. You know, don't leave servers running overnight. You know, it's all of these little bits and pieces that people are like, I don't understand. You know, it's like, why why do people just go, oh, it's fine. It's just, it doesn't matter. It's over there. It doesn't, I don't need to think about it. Right. Turn computers off overnight. You know, your own work, you know, it's, it, these are habits. Once you understand that it's got just, just simple things to do, um, it, th that's kind of important. Uh, there was a, there was another story uh, I read last week in Wired, or it might've been this week, um, uh, about a guy who has a WordPress, um, uh, a WordPress uh, plugin. And the plugin, uh, he looked at it and he realized that if he just cut down some of the code, and mm -hmm. like 2 million people use it. If you just cut down some of the code, that he could reduce the amount of um, download, what the download speed was, yep. the amount yep. of download. And he's worked out it's around, um, I think he said 57,000 kilos of carbon emissions saved oh, just, wow. by doing, just by doing that. I think I'm, I'm, that's off the top of my head, but it's like, right. you know, it doesn't take a lot to start to think about right. how to, how can I reduce the impact of what I'm doing. And it, you know, even to the point of going, can I just reduce the amount, you know, taking libraries out of code, you know, taking frameworks that you're not using out of the code, you know, actually just reducing the amount of code you write mm -hmm. is just a simple thing to do. And it's not that it's going to save the planet if you, you know, if you take one line of code out and well done, it's just, it's just the principle. It's just following through on a principle. And it's just taking these principles and saying, this is, this is what I'm going to do ongoing. But, you know, that's all it is. It's, it's a set of principles. And if you can stick to them, then after a while, you find that you just keep doing them and keep doing them. And you are, you are finding that it gets better and better over time. All right. I mean, it's the straw. It's the straw that broke the camel's back, but in a good way, going the other yeah, way, right? Like exactly. every little bit, every little bit yeah. helps. Um, yeah. I mean, and I think that's something you know that is is a powerful, mo you know, a powerful motivator for startups is saving money, right? So yeah. trying to be efficient in those in those ways. And I know I've worked for a lot of bootstrap startups or a lot of startups that were like, eh, let's keep you know, let's keep the cost down. Um, so I mean, I think again, working with serverless having those constraints, having that mindset of we need to be more efficient, having the mindset of we need to save some more money. Um, I mean, these are all benefits that really should benefit your company in the long run anyways. Um, and I guess that's another thing too. What about organizations? So like, what can you do? Like you're just a staff engineer at a, at a company. What do you do to try to affect change at your organization? So um, one of the, so this kind of goes back to the work that I've been doing with the Leading Edge Forum um, up until, uh, well, still in the middle of doing it. It's kind of working with them on uh, looking at organizations and how they, how they uh, change and grow and look at climate and look at sustainability as a, as a wider goal. One of, the, um, one of the things that is clear is that actually organizations don't know things like uh, you know, where all their emissions come from. They don't know things like uh, understanding whether they, um, uh, you know, whether their supply chain is full of, you know, good or bad emissions or what. Right. They don't know these things. It's actually quite difficult to understand. So it's it's actually a simple thing to go and talk to your head of sustainability and go, well, actually, what what is the situation? And I actually... I. I, I know this, I've done this at a number of companies. If you go and talk to these people, they love talking to technical people because then they can go, oh, can you give us a hand with this complex technical problem? And you're sitting there right. going, brilliant. I'm, I've now got some <laughs> things that I can, you know, it's like they want something. And 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 I think, I think over the next few years, I think we're going to see a, a connection between data and sustainability that is is going to become a quite important key um key thing so i would suggest that if you're just a you know a staff engineer at a small company or something like that i think 
putting yourself into a conversation with with head of sustainability or or asking who is you know leading on this in if you're in a smaller company i think is actually quite important um, you know i've talked to a number of smaller companies who are going you know they've asked me well how can we reduce our carbon footprint and, and actually that's a very difficult question if you're a smaller company it's like well you know we, we've it's just pre-2020 but you know um you know they they were doing things like flying to conferences and you know understanding yeah. you know how how what can we do there and it's like well either you reduce the amount of you're flying to conferences or at the very least you offset and offset more than you would normally offset yeah. but you need to understand reducing is actually quite important so think about what you're doing there so maybe think about doing remote conferences and remote videos and and being a leader in front of that and talking about why you're doing that and you know a couple of companies have taken that on board and started to do that anyway before all of this and i think we might see more virtual conferences anyway you know yeah. after we've after this whole change in the way that we do things I think people are becoming more used to doing virtual work and virtual conferences and seeing the value in all of that. So so I think it's just starting to become aware of, again, all those little things. It's like, you know, well, we, we use servers, we do this, we do that. Talking to the senior people and actually asking, starting to ask questions. What are we doing in this company? How are we doing it? How can I help? Is just a really easy question. And you'll find that actually not many people are actually asking that question most people don't a lot right. of people who are uh, even in large companies even in very very large companies they don't necessarily ask that question they, they want to do something but they don't necessarily go up to someone and go well what can i do and i think that's actually i think i think that's a really straightforward and simple thing to do and people will respond well, you made a you made a good point about the uh, the travel, um, you know, for conferences and things like that. And and I know you're you know you were one of the founders of uh, the Serverless Days Conference or JeffConf originally, yeah. um, you know, which I think is an amazing thing. And I really like that idea of regional conferences in the sense where people can you know take public transportation or you know they don't have to fly to get to these. And then you bring in some speakers that do fly. But it's better to have 10 people fly than to say have 65,000 people fly to Vegas for reInvent or you know for Google Next or some of these other really, really large conferences. So I like those small sort of intimate regional conferences um, because you know again those are I mean, more efficient, I guess, than uh, than making a lot more people travel to one place, and as opposed to having a few uh, few people travel, it's a little easier to get to. Um, so, all right, so we talked about the big three a little bit and compared mm -hmm. them in terms of their green and stuff like that. Uh, but you, in that paper that you wrote, you have this cloud league table um, in there uh, where you compare them. So I'd love to I'd love to know more. Like, you know, what about Alibaba and Oracle and IBM and some of these other things? Like, where does where do they all stack up against one another? And that's part one of my chat with Paul Johnston. Join us next week for part two. I want to give a huge thank you to Paul for being my guest this week and to our sponsors, Amazon Web Services and Epsigon. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 59. Plus, you can also sign up to be a Serverless Chats insider and submit questions to our guests, suggest episode topics, and even win some free swag. For more Serverless Chats, subscribe, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.